Welcome to the South Plains Church of Christ podcast. To stay up to date on what's going on and how you can be involved, visit southplains.org. I pray that this message reveals God's truth and love to you today. Let's dive in. Satan said to Eve, has God been telling you what to do? And Eve said, well, he said not, we're not supposed to eat of that one tree in the middle of the garden or we'll die. And Satan said, you don't have to listen to God. Be your own boss. Do your own thing. You go ahead. Eat from that tree. You'll know good from evil. You'll be just like God. Suddenly the fruit on the tree looked irresistible, and Eve took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband, and he also ate it. And the results were, well, were disastrous. They were immediately alienated from God, expelled from the garden, estranged from their environment, and eventually overtaken by death. We all have that rebellious nature, don't we? It's, it's almost an, an instinct that we, that we resist authority. We don't want any authority figure telling us what to do. We see it in children. And everybody has their own name for it. We had one uh, lady involved in education in the place we were, and she, she looked at it and called it, well, they're leaders of tomorrow. <laughs> But there's a sense every little one wants their own way. The drive for independence is expressed in youth through, well, through temper tantrums and pouting spells and just plain open defiance. I want to do it myself. When children go off to school, they are elated to be free from their parents. They feel so big. It's not too many years before they begin to complain about those teachers telling them what to do. One teenager got so fed up with the teachers lording it over him, he just dropped out of school and joined the army. And that was worse because the sergeants were always barking out orders. Now he couldn't wait to get discharged, so finally he could settle down and get married and be free. <laughs> and then he dreamed of the day when he would be totally free and he would have no boss. He'd have no customers telling him what to do. But there, always, there will always be spouses and government officials and doctors and even our own children dictating how we're supposed to behave. I remember reading the story sent around a Presbyterian home for the aged. And it, it seems that several of the residents uh, rose up and got a hold of the manager and stuck her in the closet and locked her in there 
and, and began to do things their way. Uh, eventually, the police were called and came into the, the residence there. And, uh, and as they were trying to figure out what's going on, one of the older gentlemen said, Well, what's the sense in living a long time if some 50-year-old kid's going to tell me what to do? Well, it seems from the, from the cradle almost to the grave, we resist authority. And deep down, we resent God's authority. For example, the third commandment out of the ten. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. That should be so easy. I mean, there are so many names in here. John Paul, just use that one, why not? But when you hit your thumb, what do you say? Oh, John Paul. <laughs> no, you say, oh, Jesus Christ, don't you? Or you're startled by something, and, and what do you say? Oh, oh, oh my, Martha Stewart. <sighs> no, you don't. You say, oh, my God. Because... Why? Because that's the one name. That's the one name. And we resist authority. When we choose to follow Jesus, it is a deliberate choice to submit our will to the authority of God. We repent of our self-will. We surrender our ego. We profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we submit to him as our God. I submit to him as Lord and King over all things. And I pray, not my will, Lord, but your will be done, which is why we make profession before we're baptized that Jesus is the Son of God, our Lord. But we like to separate Savior and Lord. But we mustn't do that. I don't just do what I want to do. I do what he says. I, I may not feel like saying no to lust. I may not feel like saying yes to the poor. I may not feel like forgiving someone who has offended me. But if, if he is my Lord, then I will allow him to direct what I do. He even dictates how I believe. Rather than always being up with the times or being politically correct. Paul taught, let this mind be in you that was first in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus calls us to take up our own cross, a crucifixion of self, a humble submission of the will, deny yourself. And now in Luke chapter 20, he records when his enemies, Luke records when Jesus' enemies challenge his authority. The religious leaders confronted him with three questions in the attempt to undermine his credibility. Their goal was to reestablish their own influence to continue with their own agenda without the interference of Jesus. And his response to each question <laughs> revealed his authority and still calls for us. To give allegiance. The first 
They questioned his authority. Verse 1, one day as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? That's easy to see why the religious leaders would uh, be upset. Just two days before, as, as Carter reminded us last Sunday, Jesus had written, ridden into town on, a, on the back of a donkey, pointing to his messiahship, his kingship. The next day, he stormed into the temple and, and cleansed, uh, uh, cleansed it of corrupt practices. And now here he is in the temple courts teaching, setting up class in their territory. They were the religious teachers. They were the leading teachers. He's, he's not a priest. He's not royalty. He has no authorization from Rome. He's not even been to their teacher training schools. Who gives you the right to do these things? Now, if he had said, I have no authority, he would, be in, he would have been in trouble with the Jews for invading the temple and acting like a prophet. If he had said, I have the authority from God, he'd be in trouble with, well, he'd be in trouble with the Romans because they always were on the alert for messiahs and he'd be arrested for insurrection. But Jesus was brilliant with his answer. Verse 3, let me first ask you a question, he replied. Didn't John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Well, that answer immediately put them on the defensive because the people loved John the Baptist. He was now clearly a martyred prophet of God and had identified Jesus as Messiah. So, verse 5, they talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe John? But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they're convinced John was a prophet. So, they finally replied, they didn't know. They decided to play dumb. They decided to not answer at all. They were deceitful in asking, and now they're dishonest in avoiding to answer. So, verse 8, Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Commentator Lewis Foster said, in this way, Jesus effectively silenced them and forced them to withdraw in embarrassment. At the same time, he had actually answered their question and they knew it. John's authority had come from God and Jesus was likewise. If Jesus is the Lord of our lives, then he is Lord over religious leaders today. Even those who question his existence, even those who scoff at his miracles, even those who would reverse his teaching and in effect become their own God. You let Jesus be your Lord. You, let, you be like the Bereans who, who searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was teaching them was true because it is possible to twist, to pervert the good news of Jesus into something else. It's been being done since the first century. That's why Paul's letter was written to the Galatians. Jesus' authority had been proven by his resurrection and by the lordship of his church for now over 2,000 years. And it's imperative that he be your Lord, even over religious spokespeople. 
Well, in the next section, secondly, they question Jesus about religious duty. Look, verse 20. Watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so they would arrest Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know that you speak and teach what is right. and You're not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now, tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, in any political season, we know a question about taxes is sure to put a leader on the spot. In fact, this was a hot button for the Jews at this particular time. They chafed under the Roman authority by which they uh, taxed them, and they paid every dime begrudgingly. So these spies were bringing up the question of Roman authority, hoping to get Jesus to either offend the Jews by saying, yes, we should pay our taxes, or offend the Romans by saying, no, we shouldn't pay our taxes. Again, Jesus is brilliant in his answer, verse 23. He saw through their trickery and said, show me a Roman coin whose picture and title are stamped on it. Caesar's, they replied. Well, then, he said, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar." And give to God that which belongs to God. So they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer. And they became silent. Jesus Christ should be the Lord of our duty to the government as citizens. You give to the government what rightfully belongs to the government. God established the government, Paul wrote for the purpose of restraining humanity's sinful nature. It's in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Proverbs 8, 15. It's essential for an orderly society, for the common good. So, in this context, Caesar isn't perfect, but as long as he is not calling on you to disobey God directly, you, you cooperate. In either way, the followers of Jesus ought to be the best citizens of any country. Let me ask you, what rightfully belongs to God? Well, everything does. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, everything was created through him and for him. The Roman coin was stamped with Caesar's image, but we are bearers of God's image. If Jesus is Lord, it's going to impact every area of our lives. Well, the third question they had was really about eternity. Verse 27, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees. This is a different group. Religious leaders who say... There is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife with no children, his brother should marry the widow and carry on his brother's name. Verse 29, well, 
Suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow. But he also died. Then the third brother married her. You would think they would catch on, wouldn't you? This continued with all seven of them who died without children. And finally, the woman also died, thankfully. Uh, So tell us, verse 33, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. This is a silly, shallow question asked, no doubt, with a condescending spirit. But these were Sadducees who believed only in the first five books of our Old Testament, the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They believed those were the only ones authoritative, and they didn't believe in life after death. In fact, didn't believe in any kind of spiritual world, uh, angels or spirit. So they bring an absurd, hypothetical question to Jesus. Jesus' answer was masterful, verse 34. He replied, marriage is for people here on earth, but in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they will never die again. In this respect, they'll be like angels. They are children of God, children of the resurrection. So Jesus makes it clear here, there is life after death, but it won't be exactly as it is now. Relationships will be different. No one will be married, and no one will die. Somewhat like the angels, we won't be angels. And then he goes on to prove to them that Moses, who they were holding up, believed in life after death. They had simply missed it. Verse 37. But now as to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. That's in the book of Exodus. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as... The God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for they are all alive in him. He would have used the past tense. I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not I am the God of. You, You see, you just missed it. And you've got to love this. The usual group that were opposing him, Pharisees and the such, were standing over the side listening to this point. And they all, when they heard this, they all said, oh, oh, that's right. Well said. Good point. Good point. Yes. Wait a second. What are we doing? Uh, and then nobody dared ask him any more questions. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority on eternal life. If you're going on a trip to the South Pole, who are you going to go to advise? Who are you going to go ask for advice? Maybe your neighbor who'd gone to Niagara Falls one time? Maybe, maybe a book written by, I don't know, Santa Claus? No. You're going to go to somebody credible. 
maybe Admiral Byrd or somebody who literally had been to the South Pole and survived, an expert who knew. So when it comes to eternal matters, why turn to myths? Why turn to some psychic claiming to have gone into the realm of the dead and come back? Jesus alone has been there and returned. Put your confidence in him. He is the one who promised in John chapter 14, I can go and prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back for you. So when it comes to your own death, don't be your own boss. Submit to Jesus. Make him the Lord in your life. Say along with the psalmist, and though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, I don't know who it is in your life, but there's somebody in your life, each of us here, who if they say to you, why don't you come over tonight, or I'm going to bring something tomorrow, you get excited. Not because you know what they're bringing, but because you know they know you. And whatever it is, it's going to be good for you. I don't know much about life after death. I don't know much about heaven or about new heavens and new earth. Scriptures actually don't tell us a lot. But I know Jesus. And he knows me. And Paul said, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection. Just about all of us here, I'm, I think it's safe to say, are going to die. Someday, likely unexpectedly. But if your confidence is in Jesus, you don't need to fear the moment. He'll meet you. He'll be there. One of the things we celebrate in communion is our faith that he is with us here. And he will be with us there. Jesus, Jesus isn't just somebody we admire. He is somebody we worship. He is the Lord over religious leaders. He is Lord over all governments. He is Lord over eternal matters. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we accept that deliberately and freely and forever. And if you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, if you would humbly come submitting yourself to him as Lord, some of the elders who will be down here or self, we would love to guide you in the next steps of proclaiming him your Lord and being baptized into him. If you're already a baptized follower of Jesus and desire to be part of this fellowship, proclaiming his name, we hope you'll let us know that. Jesus isn't just somebody we admire. We worship him and we look forward to his return as we stand together and sing. Thanks for listening. Again, I want to encourage you to visit southplains.org 
where you can find all sorts of information, including how to contact us and how to request prayer. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.